There's never a time that I don't uh, enjoy a Christian funeral. Anybody else there with me? You're like, that is the strangest opening to a sermon I've ever heard in my life. Uh, um, actually, uh, one of the things that is a pleasure that I, I often get to do is, is go to Christian funerals. And uh, why I say it's a pleasure, it's not because somebody died. It's not because of the mourning. It's not because of that. But because oftentimes somebody's life is laid out in such a manner that it challenges me to continue on in my faith, to continue on in my desire to, to know the Lord, to be a better father, uh, you know, a better a husband, a better pastor, all those things because people's lives in Christ are incredible. Have you ever noticed that? I don't know if you've been to a Christian funeral and uh, one day uh, you, you will, most likely, uh, hopefully not your own, and the, uh, the uh, options will be there for a chance to hear how God has used a person's life. Now, the reason I, I start on this note is because um, just it was impressed upon me just before I was coming up here that the way I introed last service was slightly wrong. Like, I love the gospel because, and I love Christianity because not just because we live as Christians with an eye to the future, right? You, you and I understand that we have an eternity coming to us. We have this opportunity of an eternal life. We have Christ who has died for our sins and we're going to be resurrected on a new earth. But you're also a complete human that thinks into the past because Christ died on the cross in the past. In fact, we don't have to deny either the future and the possibilities or the past and all that God has been doing and done. And so I love that as you look at a Christian's life, that all of that is represented. And as we talk about these questions that you've given to me uh, today, we're going to be looking at questions pertaining to life, death, in the afterlife. And so what we're going to engage in is, it's nine questions. I said it was eight, but it's nine questions about life, death, and the afterlife. And what we're going to see is that these questions are pivotal if we're going to really grasp what God wants to do with us, what God wants to be working through us. Because, man, who doesn't, who doesn't want to understand, I think, some of these questions that we're going to be looking at. For example, I'll just give you the first one right out of the gate. It's the one question about life that I think a lot of people wonder, especially if you are a young person in college, maybe you're making decisions about what direction to head, or maybe you are an old person and you're sitting there at the end of your life going like, God, why haven't you taken me yet? I don't know why I'm still here, that kind of a question. I found this question to show up in both cases, and that's this. How do you know you're doing or in God's will? You ever ask that question to yourself? Like, how do I know that I'm living what God wants me to be? Well, how, what, what, where should I go? Should I be this career or that career? Why am I still here on earth? I feel like God's done with me. Why hasn't he removed me? Isn't, is there something more for me to do? That's all the same question. How do I live and how do I know that I'm living in God's will? Come on, you never asked that question. I hope you've asked that question because this is a critical one. And what's interesting is that the answer has uh, been all over the map, right? I, when I was younger, you always kind of tried to look for God's will in, in funny ways. Like, I remember it's like, oh, is this, is this girl going to be my wife? God, if this girl's going to be my wife, let the next license plate I see have a Z on it. You know, you ever done things like that, right? Okay, I have. But anyway, it was a, it was a weird time in my life. That's magic. That's not seeking God's will. Instead, what I want to do is answer the question kind of how the Bible wants us to answer the question. It starts in Romans chapter 12 in verses 1 and 2. And what's interesting is this is clearly about God's will. Notice the will of God is at the second sentence at the end there. And it starts this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
So, so Paul, in writing to the Romans, is giving an answer to this question, how do I know what the will of God is? And first and foremost, you have to ask yourself, whether you're at, sitting at home or outside or in here, you have to ask yourself, do you really want to answer the question? Let's be honest. Because we can ask the question, God, what do you want for my life? And you could be sitting there begging God at home, on, you know, watching, going, God, what do you really want me to do with my life? But really what you're asking is, God, what I want to do with my life, is that what you really want to bless? Are you on my will or do I have to change something? Because if you, some of us find out God wants you to go in a direction that you don't want to go and you go, I don't really want to know what God's will is for my life then. And so you have to start with the, with the assumption that you're doing what the first line says, that you and I, by the mercies of God, by the fact that Jesus Christ, through the gospel, his work on the cross, bore our sins, removed our rebellion so that we could have a relationship with God. And you, from that response, we offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice. Someone who's saying, God, here I am, use me. Here I am, do what you will through me. You've given me everything. You've given me a relationship with you. You've taken away all my stupid ideas of what I thought I should be in life. And now all that sin and junk has been put on you and you've given me a new direction. And we need this. Because if I was to really tell you what God's will is, it's pretty simple. I mean, I know 10 commandments that really explicitly state his will clearly right, right away, right? We know the 10 commandments. How about love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? You think that's God's will for us? Absolutely. How about go into all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Or, or how about this one? Humble yourself. Yuck, right? Do not, uh, be quick to listen Slow to speak and slow to anger. Are these God's will? Yes, this is God's will for our life. It comes in every commandment. And if I left you here today, go, go after, go do God's will. Come on, you can do it. I would be lying to you. You cannot fulfill God's will, not by yourself. There's no way you're going to fulfill any of these commandments by yourself at all. And you don't have to. Jesus already did. You hear me? That's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus fulfilled the will of God. The only person who's ever completely fulfilled the will of God. And he gave you his life so that, guess what? When you attempt to figure out what the will of God is and you make a mistake, God doesn't kick you out. He teaches you and even uses your garbage and mistakes in his will. And so what I want to do is kind of take the fear away that what if I don't get into God's will? What if I, no, Jesus already did that. He was the perfect one. You already screwed that up. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll figure it out. We're the mess. We can't fulfill God's will. We can't obey the commands without having surrendered to Christ so that when that will comes, we can actually step towards it. And we won't always do that perfectly, but I want you guys to understand that that's that critical piece that Jesus Christ has done the will of God. And now we have the opportunity to step forward. And so are we surrendered? Are you really asking the question? If you are, okay, well, let's try to answer it. First of all, how in the world does this say that you should know and learn what the will of God is for your life or if you're doing what God wants you to? And the answer is found here. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, Right? What he's saying here is, hey, don't take the worldly advice and let it transform you and adjust you and show you how to, what, what they want you to do with your life, how you want to do it, what the world's will is. No, you want to know Christ's will, then you conform your mind to the word of God. I'll tell you what, to have your mind washed, changed, transformed, your life shifted, shaped, and moved by the word of God is not something that's easily done in our current world. Because let, let's all be honest, 
You get maybe, what, a half hour, hour of quiet time? You know, you're like, no. Okay, so maybe a week, right? Maybe you get some time in the Word every day. Maybe you listen to some pastors on the way to school, on, on the way to school work, on the way to church, wherever you go. You get a little bit of time on, of church on the weekends versus every other moment of the day where the world is constantly giving you concepts and ideas and information, whether it's in television, on radio, or whether it's across the internet, or whether the cubicle, you name it, there is a constant barrage of the world's information. And so we need to be the kind of people who are allowing the word of God to sift in us so that when you have a decision to make, it starts becoming clear, wow, that is God's will. That is obviously sin. I can't go in this direction with this career because that's not going to go in the direction that, that leads to, to godly things. I'm not going to go over, and, and those are pretty obvious, let's be honest. Like you're not going to go out there and start a strip joint or something like that. That's just not where you're going to go if you're a Christian. You're actually going to actively, hopefully try to shut those down and help people find a different life. We're not going to sit there and we're not going to try to steal money and, and charge or charge large amounts of, um, you know, what was it called? Interest on people who borrow a little bit of money from you. That, that's not what we do. There are things we just don't do now. But then there's questions about like, okay, what do I do? What, what if I've got two choices that are good? And I don't know. Both are scriptural. They're not bad. And I don't have a lot of time to go learn the Bible, right? Go home, read it 10 times tonight and tell me what you think. No. What do you do? Well, first you can pray. You need to sit down and ask God, God, would you just show me which one's the right way? Would you just reveal kind of how I should go? Maybe make one way clearer or the other or have somebody inform me. That's, that's a route you can go forward with. But really in prayer, what you don't want to get into is like I was joking, like, hey, show me by a red letter showing up on my wall, like a hand, right? What I know, that's not the stuff you should do. Instead, what you need to do is back up and just go, God, show me where I'm getting in the way. Where's my sinfulness trying to dictate what I should do versus what you want me to do? Show me that. And then if you really need help, I'm going to tell you the best thing you can do is to fast forward by finding wise counsel. Guys, go find a Christian who knows the word of God, who's saturated and who sits in it, who makes good decisions and preferentially they know you. They know who you are. They know, your, they know your personality. They kind of know your faults. And they're like, I know you want to go this way, but I really think that from what I'm reading and what I know about you, that this is the direction you should head. And sometimes you're going to find counsel still doesn't help. You're not getting any answers from God. Everything's okay. Your counsel is saying like, you could do either one or one loves this one. The other one loves that one. And you're like, I don't know what to do. What's God's will? The answer is pick one. And that becomes God's will. Did you realize that? I mean, in his providence, he already knew he knew what you were going to pick. He didn't make you pick it, but he knew what you were going to pick. That was his will. And so you pick it. You step forward. If he doesn't want you to do it, he'll close the door on you. He'll stop you. It'll be, you can't pick it anymore. And so finding what God's will is, whether you're older or younger, is still the same process. What does the word of God have? What decisions do you have before you? Be clear about those. See which ones are right and then get counsel, pray through it, make a decision and see what God does. Now, here's the thing. If you make a decision, you step forward in what you believe is the will of God. It's not sinful. Counsel's giving you, hey, yeah, that's a great idea. Your prayer life, you're like, you cleared it up. You see all that and you do it and you step forward and you're moving on it and it just feels awful. Things go bad. You know, there's fight and infight and struggle and difficulty and you're like, oh my goodness, this is not the will of God. Yes, it is. The outcome does not determine what the will of God is. Always remember the one who perfectly fulfilled the will of God. Where did he wind up? 
on a cross. On this earth, when we perfectly follow the will of God, it does not mean you're going to be comfortable, famous, and rich, okay? That's just not how it's going to work. Even though that's what we all hope God's will is for us. Uh, Not. But the point is that we think somewhere in our minds, if I know what God's will is and I do God's will, it's all going to go right. No, it's not. Because you live in a sinful, broken world. And even when Jesus, who did it perfectly and walked in God's will and never broke it, he wound up on a cross. So don't judge the outcome. You will do faithful things, do right things for God, and there will be obstacles, and there will be pain, and there will be junk. But here's the thing, you would have never done it. You'd have never done those things that God is using in your life and working through to do great things through you in lives of others. You would have never done those things had you known there would be suffering involved. This is who we are. So often God leads us in his will to things that are greater than us and harder than us because he wants to reveal himself through us. So how do you know the will of God? Surrender to his will. First and foremost, just say, whatever it is, God, I'm ready to go. Know his word, put it in your life, get counsel, pray through it, make a choice and be ready for what God's going to do. Amen? So that's how I would tell you that answer. Now, that's a critical because how we live this out then becomes really important because it's going to filter into your life in different ways. And as Christians do this, hopefully we're walking in the will of God more and more and even when the end of the world starts to happen and stuff, we'll be ready. Because that's really what the next question was. And it was this, are Christians ready for the Antichrist? So we're talking still about life. We haven't got to death yet, but this guy will bring death. And that's the point here. We got this, are Christians ready for the Antichrist? And I thought, I saw this and I was like, that's really an interesting question. For those of you who are not Christians or you're brand new to the, the Christian faith, an Antichrist is this one promised person who's going to rise up over and, and basically have power in the world to basically lead and rule, but he will persecute and try to end Christianity is the idea. He is against Christ. And so he's this global figure in a sense prophesied about him. People are like, dude, when that guy comes, are we ready? Right? That's the question. Well, my, my question really tacked in a different direction. Which Antichrist are we ready for? You know, there are many, right? There's not just one. And that's found in 1 John. 1 John actually says, children, it's the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. And you're like, what? Antichrists have already come? Yeah, I knew Hitler was an Antichrist. No, no, hold on. Listen, what, what he's saying is that there have been plenty of people throughout the history of the church, and this is, only 90, this is only 60 years of the church right here when he's writing, and he's saying, look, there have already been people who've come out and fought against Christ. They've fought against the gospel. They've tried to shut it down. There's they've been emperors. Those are trying to literally end the church. Those are the antichrists. It's that spirit of antichrist that exists in the world. And so when people said, are we ready for the antichrist? I'm like, well, which one? But okay, let's just take the big one. Let's go with the antichrist. They go, awesome. Are Christians ready for the antichrist? Which Christians? Do we just mean American Christians? Or are we talking about Chinese Christians? Australian Christians? How about African Christians? How about Christians in Zimbabwe? Christians in Somalia? How about Christians in the Middle East? How about Christians in Germany? I mean, the answer would be different for all of those, right? Because Christianity is not an American thing. Christianity is a global thing and it's far more dominant and powerful in the South, in South America and Africa and in China than it is anywhere in the United States or the West. And so when we talk about this, don't forget, we're not talking about are are, are American Christians ready and therefore Christians are ready. No, no, you got to kind of uncouple America as the centerpiece of Christianity. It's not. It's a global faith and this is a global antichrist. 
And so the answer I go is like, well, I don't know. Are the global Christians ready for a global antichrist? Well, that depends. Do we think that we're the Christians that the global antichrist is going to show up for? That's pretty presumptuous. And so I kind of back up and I go like, how, like, what's going on here? Like, are, is this the antichrist? Is that guy the antichrist? What, should we be picking him out? Should we be looking for him and doing, time out. I know there's one truth for all Christians at all times and all places that we should be following. And it's not get ready for the antichrist. It was get ready for Jesus Christ's return. You see, when these kind of questions were flung at Jesus by his own disciples the day before he's about to leave, and if you've got your Bible, you can open to this. It's in Acts chapter 1, and it's an important text. I want you to stay there with me. Acts chapter 1, starting verse 6. And what it reads is this. Let me read it to you. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, he's like, is this it? This is the end times? This one's all going to... Time out, guys. That's uh, not for you guys to know. Here's what I got for you guys to do. Here's my will. Go do it. See how I tied the first question and saying, it was kind of cool, huh? Anyway, so the point is, what we have is this opportunity to go bring the gospel to the nations, if you and I will get on that page and we will bring the gospel to our city, bring the gospel to our friends, our family, our neighbors, I guarantee you, you're going to meet some antichrists, people who don't like it, who are going to persecute you, and you'll be walking in the middle of the will of God, and you'll be able to go, I'm doing the will of God. I know this is difficult, but they're after him, not me. I'm going to stand in this. And guess what? I don't care where you are, on what planet you are, you're ready because you're doing the work of Jesus. And when you're doing the work of Jesus and you have a kickback and fight back and all that stuff, persecution truly coming at you, who cares if it's a big global persecutor or a little guy? You're ready. And every Christian who's on mission, every Christian who's walking for the sake of the kingdom of God and leading and seeking that message to go into this world, they are ready for a global or a personal antichrist. Because we're ready for Jesus Christ. That's the real aim and the real goal. Does that make sense? And so I want to kind of refocus sometimes back from some of the questions because, yeah, there's going to be a, a point at which life is going to end. And for us as Christians, we want to have lived well. We want to have honored Christ. And there's only two ways we're getting off this, this road, right? There's only two off ramps allowed. And the first off ramp is death. And the second one is Jesus coming back, right? That's it. You, I don't know any other way you're getting out of here, but that's it. And so when we look at death, there's a new problem. Death ha has become a kind of a, Let's call it a racket. Anybody noticed how expensive it is to bury your loved one? That's ridiculous. And yet it's caused an issue, especially amongst Christians, who find that the cheapest option, especially for people who don't have a lot of money, is the option of cremation. And so there's a struggle here for some people. And the, qu the question came up, what does the Bible say about cremation? Is it allowed? And I loved this question. Although I'm going to walk all over the question, it, it, uh, and please don't get mad at me. But the, the point is that we really, really, really do wonder about this. I don't think Christians are asking it enough. What does the Bible say about cremation? And is it allowed? Well, first off, the Bible doesn't really say anything about cremation itself. You know, there's no verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not cremate your body, or thou shalt not burn yourself on a pyre. You know, that, none of that's in the Bible. But there are big, large, overarching themes in Scripture that reference this concept. For example, the Jews never burned their dead. They always buried them, at least in the ancient world. 
It starts with Abraham, who's not even Jewish. He's like pre-Jewish. He's, he's, he's the father of the Jewish people in Israel and, and the Hebrews. And Abraham is known to have buried him, his wife. And then when he died, it says in the scriptures clearly in Genesis, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Mechpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, in the, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. That's called a map in the Bible, by the way. And we know where the location is. They still worship at the location today. Uh, they still honor Abraham and Sarah and all the other patriarchs that were buried there. And there Abraham was buried with Sarah's wife. My point is simply, hey, he got buried. You go, well, that's easy. He was a rich guy. The poor guys don't get buried. Yes, they did. In fact, people had family tombs. And whether you were the poor guy in the family or the rich guy in the family, you all got buried in the same tomb. And so you'd find even if you were the criminal of the family, you needed to be buried. In Deuteronomy, Moses tells uh, the people, look, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree. Don't, Don't leave him there to rot. You shall bury him in the same day. Notice you bury him. You don't burn him, you bury him. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Okay, so you're going to even bury the cursed people. That's what he's saying. And so we have this whole history of burial, whole history. You put them in a cave, their, bone, their, their body decays, they take the bones, they put them in a box, they put them in a well. Over and over and over and over, this is the historical way Hebrews and Jewish people did burials. And it's also how Jesus was buried. And this is the critical point for Christians. Jesus was buried in a tomb. Joseph took the body of Jesus and wrapped it in a linen trout, laid it in his own new tomb, which which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. There's this whole big lie that was produced by this guy named John John Shelby Spong, and he he claimed, oh, no, 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 they they would take the crucified people and throw them in a a shallow grave and let the dogs eat them. Uh, The problem is we're finding crucified people. We found another one last year in archaeology. These people were buried. And so we see, yes, Jesus was buried in a tomb, but he, more importantly, he, was, he rose from the dead out of the tomb. And so as Christians, traditionally, you know what? I, I, I'm kind of a traditional Christian. You know what I think? I want to be like Jesus. Anybody else with me on that one? Hey, Jesus got buried. I want to get buried. It's kind of how I am. And that's, that's kind of my point. I'm like, I don't care. You throw me in a shallow grave or whatever. Just I want to get buried. Because as Christians, we believe, hey, you're going to resurrect. It's why when we buried people, we stopped calling it a burial grounds and we started calling it a cemetery. The word literally means the sleep, the place of sleep. Because we knew they were going to sleep and rise up. Why were you buried next to your family? Because you were going to rise with your family. And so you were there with your family and of the generations is a testimony of the coming resurrection. Second, it's the way to honor the image of God. Your body is made in the image of God. It's why we don't allow our military to drag a dead body behind it or use human shields or stuff like that. That's because it's dishonoring to the dead person who is the image of God. Now, we've gotten further away from that, but those used to be the rules. And what's interesting is we've always honored the physical body as the image of God as well. And so you didn't chop it up and burn it up and that stuff in the Christian traditions. In fact, part of that Christian tradition, it was that fire was a picture of judgment. In fact, Achan is the first one we see that's really kind of burned in the Bible. He was a guy who literally took some stuff that was supposed to be banned and burned from Jericho. And because he sinned, there was a judgment put on the 
the army of the Israelites and they failed. And Joshua's was like, what in the world's going on? And they do this lot thing and they pick out Achan and Achan's like, oh, I hid the stuff under my tent. My family knows we're all keeping it hush hush. We really wanted to be rich later. And so in the end, they condemn him, even though he's like, I'm sorry, people died. I didn't really mean to, whatever. And he's like, Joshua's like, uh-uh, you're done. And he and tells Achan, sorry, why did you bring jo- trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They, bury, they burned him with fire and stoned them with stones. And this is just one of those horrific moments highlighted in the history of Israel that they were going to bring judgment and one of the ways was through fire. It's no wonder as the passages continue on, the history continues on, fire becomes a centerpiece of judgment to the point that Jesus is using it when it comes to the final judgment. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than two hands and go to hell in the unquenchable fire. It's like, hey, better to limp into life, eternal life, than to run into hell. And his point is very clearly, hey guys, the fire is in the judgment. Now, that's traditionally why we have not burned the bodies of dead people, but we have buried them. So is it a sin to, to, to do cremation? The answer is no. It's not. You're like, Greg, I'm totally confused now. Yes, you should be. The reason I say that is because while it's not a sin, and sometimes it's the only possible way to do something, I want you to think more Christianly about these issues. There is a history for us. We didn't start in 1988, guys. We have a history of 2,000 years of traditions that go back there that honors the Christian story in our life, our death, and our afterlife. And we want to remember that sometimes the culture wants to move us along, but maybe there's another way forward. Maybe there's some Christian imagination that can begin to break through this problem. Maybe there's some Christian uh, ways to, to kind of figure out how to do burial without the state messing it up, making it super expensive, or other people extorting humans. Maybe there's a right way to go back. But if it's the case that you have someone who says, I would like to be cremated, that's, that's what we can afford, that's how I want to do it, at least um, figure out a way to bring it into the Christian imagery. Yes, God can resurrect ashes into a human being. He can do anything. So let's not worry about that. This is just about Christian symbols. And so I want to encourage you that if you're convicted not to cremate like I am, don't do it. If it's not an opinion for you, okay, make a choice. Use Christian wisdom. See, I did. I took it back the first one. Anyway, again, so that'll be a running joke. Anyway, so the, uh, it's not good. But the point is that you and I have a decision to make. And I want you to think through it in a Christian manner. And yes, there are decisions that have to be made with finances and things like that. Then, hey, why not honor that person? Have a place for them in a sleeping place where your family is. You know, there's other routes forward. And so I want to encourage you guys to consider through that. But no, cremation is not a sin, but it is not part of the Christian tradition. So think it through. Now, another question that came up is about life or the end of life because it's about the other way. So the first one's about death. Do we do cremation? What about what about the other way when Jesus comes back? And this is the question as it was asked. Is there, a pre-tribulational ra- is there a pre-tribulation rapture? I loved how direct this was. It's not, is there an idea of the pre-tribulation? Does this happen? And so some of you guys are like, what is that? Okay, for those of you who don't know what this is, a pre-tribulation rapture is a viewpoint in Christianity about how Christ comes back and what happens around him. 
All right, so in one view of how Christ comes back and what happens around him is this idea of the rapture. Now, the rapture is in every viewpoint. It, it's clearly talked about in 1 Thessalonians. It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with a voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be raptured, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So there is a concept of a rapture in the scripture. The question that people are asking is, when's it going to happen? And now you're getting into a very complicated situation. A pre-tribulational rapture is this. God has started with Israel. And then one day, he just, at the cross, Jesus offers the kingdom. They go, no, thank you. And so he pauses Israel. He says, okay, we'll stop with the kingdom for a minute. And we'll go off the law. And now we're going to go into grace. And so he starts with the church. And through this time period called the church age, he's got the church out there preaching the gospel to all the nations. And once the nations are hearing it, he will then says, say, okay, I'm done with the church. Jesus will come rapture his church out. And then he will begin the last, what's called the week of Daniel's 70 weeks. You can look at that another time. And we'll start with the last seven years and we will reset with kingdom of Israel. And here, we'll, here we go. Church is out, seven years. And if you watched uh, any of the um, the end, the uh, what is that? Left Behind series. This is what it's talking about. And you'll say, okay, your last seven years, boom, three and a half are kind of bad with the Antichrist and stuff. The last three are horrible because there's the wrath of God. Everybody then debates over, is this how it works? Now, just so you know, that is the minority viewpoint in Christianity. And that's oftentimes shocking to Southern Californians because we hear about it all the time. It's on our radio broadcast. It's kind of the most popular pastors teach it. It is the minority viewpoint in Christianity. The vast majority of Christians aren't even in the same like ballpark talking about it. You say, what are you talking about? Well, give you a, a sense of how this works. Most of the arguments are over 1,000, this term 1,000 years in the book of Revelation. You know, if you guys read that, you've seen that. And they argue, is that a real 1,000 years of the reign of Christ? Or is that like a spiritual 1,000 years of the reign of Christ? When is that 1,000 years going to happen? Is it a symbolic and so you get all these different arguments over what is this 1,000 years of Christ? And so you have an amillennialist position who thinks it's just spiritual. Then you have a postmillennialist position that was people from the 1700s in the United States. They were like, church is going to succeed and then Jesus is going to let us reign for 1,000 years on earth. It's going to be awesome. Then there was the pre-millennial position, which is we're going to live and Christ is going to come back and then he's going to set up a reign. There's going to be 1,000 years and then there's going to be a final war and all this stuff. And then we'll enter into eternity. So those are all the different positions. And there, there is preterist, partial preterist, amillennial, then there's those. And then in this one, there's historical premillennial, then there's dispensational premillennial. Now in the dispensational camp, you're going to have an argument over whether it's progressive, classical, or reformed dispensationalism. And then you're going to have to have an argument of pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, or even the idea of pre-wrath. Now all of that is included in your conversations about the end times. Welcome. Like, what are you talking about? I just asked if there's a pre-tribulational rapture, man. My point is this. You already heard my answer. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I'm not worried about all the timetables. I think it's fun and we can have those conversations. I don't think there's an answer that we can definitively argue from every single text. There's always holes. There's always stuff. Here's how I say it. 
And I love this. I got this from another pastor I know. Let's be on, I would rather be on the welcoming committee than the planning committee. Amen? That we're busy about the business of God, bringing the gospel to the nations, and he shows up and we're like, dude, I didn't even know what was going on. I was just busy doing what you called me to do. And we're like, was it a rapture? What was it? What happened? And the bottom line is, I want you to study it. I think it's good stuff. I don't want you to get obsessed with it. And don't split the church over it. It is a good conversation to have. And Christians of all different viewpoints stand together and we'll find ourselves in eternity together. So know what you believe. Know what other people believe. Know it reasonably. Be ready to have conversations about it. But let's not use that as an, an opportunity to ignore the presentation of the gospel to other people. Amen? So, is there one? Well, in some schemes there is. I don't exactly know if that's how it's going to work out. All right. What do we do now? Well, let's move into one more before we get to the, let's go with one more, hey, it's the end of life questions. I love this one because it was obviously asked by a new Christian or a young Christian. It's this, in the second coming, does Jesus come as a baby or as an adult? I love it. I mean, you might be reading the wheel of time, but the, the idea here that I want you to see is that Jesus does indeed come back as an adult. He doesn't come back like a brand new baby and suddenly grows up because that, that would be the reincarnation concept and that's not what rebirth means in Christianity. And here's, how, here's the one scripture I can give you. Look down, you're already open to it. Acts chapter one. And when he had said these things, verse nine says, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You saw him go up as a man into heaven as an adult. He's going to come down as a man, as an adult into, into the earth. His resurrected body doesn't change. He's not going to be born as a child. He comes as an adult returning to the earth. And so when he returns, everything changes. Big shift. You move from life to death to afterlife. And the biggest question, the greatest classical question ever asked about the afterlife was asked. I'm super excited about it. Do dogs go to heaven? <laughs> Amen. Every kindergartner on the planet and every pet-loving American has asked this question at this point, right? Do dogs go to heaven? Well, that's a great question. When we really dive in and look at this question, I want to take you not to do dogs go to the heaven a.k.a. the place you go after you die. When we talk about heavens as Christians, we're not talking about post-death. We're talking about post-resurrection. Okay, that's heaven because that's eternal. When we talk about heaven, we're talking about living after you've been resurrected from the dead. And if that's the case, the answer is, heck yeah, there are dogs. Check out how it happens in Revelation 21. God's sitting on the throne and he declares, behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he's speaking of a reconstituted new heavens and new earth. And that means that, yes, no, sin will not be there. There will be that, when he, when he talk, there's certain things that all things doesn't fit with here in this category, like cats. <laughs> I'm kidding, cats will be there too. They will just be absolutely changed into dogs. And so the point is, no, there, we're, we were created to, to, to rule and, and to manage God's world. And it'll be reconstituted for us to do that. Yes, there will be animals there. I mean, you can have your cats. I'd rather have the dinosaur. 
I don't see any reason why he can't reconstitute dinosaurs on the planet or some other planet somewhere out there. If you want more information on this and the actual biblical reality that this fits within your Bible, I, I suggest this book by Randy Alcorn called Heaven. It's an excellent, excellent piece of work that uh, it's, it's dense, but every crazy question you can think about Heaven has already been answered, and he's done a great job doing it. So I want to encourage you guys to take a look at that book. But yeah, there, would be, there will be animals. In fact, C.S. Lewis even argues that your pet, likely your pet dog, would likely be in heaven. Why? Number one, pet dogs, pet cats, animals that we have as pets are often endowed with something that the wild animal doesn't have, which is a, a type of humanness. Think about it. They understand English or Spanish or whatever language you taught them. They have a name. Now, we want to think dogs and stuff out in the wild have that. They don't have that. They're just walking around smelling each other's butts. That's all they're doing, okay? But they don't respond when you say, hey, Joe. And they're like, well, that's a good name for a dog, Joe. Anyway, so the point is, would God, our Father, love to give you the pet that you love? Yeah, why wouldn't he? Can he? Sure. There's no impl implications anywhere in Scripture that he wouldn't or couldn't. And so I love that. And some of you guys are going, oh, my pet dog's going to be there. And others of you are going like, that dog's going to be there. He'll say, whatever. Okay, I get it. So afterlife is interesting. But heaven is a completely different conversation. But when you shift over, then you get into the more difficult conversations of hell. Because there's two destinations everyone's going to find themselves, either heaven or hell. And the question in theology of hell is, how much of this is from Scripture and how much of it is from tradition? This is a great question because there is a lot of tradition about hell. You get, you know, devils with little red suits and horns and poking people and torture devices and lava pits and fire burning everywhere. Well, that's Dante's Inferno. That comes a lot from um, Paradise Lost and all these re Renaissance pictures, none of which any of us have read or looked at. The reason you know all about that is because of cartoons. Right? I mean... Bugs Bunny went to hell and we all found out what hell was like, right? Running around down there. Or next thing you know, you've got, you've got the Simpsons who are exploring hell and it's always lava lakes and all that. Okay, so all our cartoons depict hell in the same classical manner, but that has nothing to do with the biblical version of hell. The biblical version of hell is far more frightening and we make it simple and silly so we can mock it instead of deal with it. Hell in the biblical version is a picture of what happens to those who ultimately reject God's rule in their life. And so when you see it in those terms, you begin to realize that hell has a lot of stuff going on in it. First and foremost, it is, a, it is not a place intended for humans. It was intended and built originally for the ultimate rebel, Satan and his angels. Jesus put it this way in one of his parables. He says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The devil and his angels the ultimate rebels, and so those rebels are cast into hell, and we who should never have rebelled wind up following if we don't find our way in a different direction. In fact, the word hell is an interesting word. If you've ever studied it, um, the word hell itself is actually a Norse term, and they had a fiery underworld kind of thing that we adopted into English. The word in the Bible is the word Gehenna. What's interesting about Gehenna is it, it is a shortened term for the Valley of Hinnom. 
Now, the Valley of Hinnom is, is actually a real valley just outside of Jerusalem that once in Israel's worst time period had several idols set up called Molech. And Molech was this fire pot demon who you would lay your living child on so they could be filleted in his hands and burned to a crisp so that you could get his whatever blessing you wanted. Such an evil that Israel finally wakes up to it, destroys these things and says, this place is so defiled, they turned it into the dump. Where everything that couldn't be fixed and anything that was considered refuse, unusable, was burned. So it's constantly burning. And the Valley of Hinnom was a constant burning fire of unused, ruined objects. Because you didn't just throw stuff away. We're, we're a throwaway society, Right? Their world was scarcity. You fixed and you passed it on. But once it was finally broken to the point it could no longer be fixed, it went to the dump. I want you to hear that imagery for a minute because we miss it. When a life is so completely ruined that it's ignored the one fix that God has given of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only thing left for it is to be ruined by sin completely. It's unfixable. It goes to Gehenna. That's the image. An unfixable life. So ruined and so completely broken because it wouldn't receive the one fix that was given. And so then it's described with fire, yes, as a picture of judgment. It's described also as a place of outer darkness. And I've heard pastors try to get around this, like, oh, there's fire, so there's light, but it's outer darkness, so there must be the smoke. No, you don't have to listen to the symbolism. It's a place of outer darkness away from who is light, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all, the scriptures state. It's a place of ultimate outer evil where it never leaves. It's a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping of, of weeping, gnashing of teeth, of anger, or at least agony, one of the two. But I guarantee you it's plenty angry because every single human being who winds up in hell will believe they do not deserve to be there and believe God is unjust. I guarantee it. And every single human who finds themselves in heaven knows they should be in hell because they deserve it. But they find themselves in heaven because of the one person who spent his time in hell, who never deserved it, and is the king of heaven, namely Jesus. And the only grace given to us is that he suffered our hell if we would receive his gift and his righteousness to be able to enter into the presence of the God who is heaven. Heaven's not just a place, it's also a person. It's the presence of God himself. It's the light. And when we realize that, Hell becomes a picture of the absence of the joy that God is, the love that God is, the truth that God is, the light and knowledge that God is, so much so that we who are made in his image are so ruined there's no fixing because we ignored the one fix. Which is why as Christians, we got to get the message out. Which is as those of you who are here today, you, you haven't received that, I would beg of you to receive it. Hell is not a thing to play around with. It's also not they're just, oh, you're just trying to scare me into heaven. No, 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 no. It's about justice. It's all about justice. You want to see justice, then you have to believe in hell. Because there has to be justice beyond this world or there is no true justice. And that means there has to be punishment. And so we're just in a place where either you don't believe in justice or we do. And so let's not just push it off as some silly cartoon thing. It's a serious theology. It has to be seriously reckoned with. And it's not comfortable. I don't like it. There's a lot about reality I don't like. I don't get to change it. 
And in the end, it leads to other struggles. And this is the last struggle and then one final question. But this is a serious one. And I believe this fear of hell brings this struggle to its primary point. And it's this, will I see my loved ones who committed suicide in heaven? Even if they're Christian. Look, the rate of suicides are increasing. And I'm not talking about for all the people out there who are going to argue with me about like suicide, oh, that guy sacrificed his life for somebody else. That was a suicide. No, no. The Bible means the sin of suicide of self-murder. I want to be very clear right at the beginning. We're very confused about this. It is a sin. But, but, but it's, a, it's a mental disease. Time out. All sin has mental aspects to it. All of them. Somewhere in the beginning of every sin is a small thing. You think a murderer started, woke up, and was just like, I'm going to kill people. No. They began with a small sin of anger, bitterness, feelings of injustice, justification, and slowly they moved forward until one day they had the opportunity, they took the opportunity, they murdered. Because they fell into the sin of wrath and let it grow. Every sin is a beginning and every sin has an ultimate. The ultimate of suicide can be in several cases, but it's typically because of shame or because we've given into despair, both of which God has not called you to. You cannot feel ashamed if you know Jesus Christ because he has borne your shame on the cross. You are not your guilt. You should feel guilty. But you are not your guilt. You are not unlovable. You are not unescapable. And if this is the thing that you're dwelling with and something in your life is telling you, just take your life, get rid of it. You are worthless. Nobody could love you. That is the lie from the pit of hell that it wants to take you to. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, hear me, receive Christ. He values you as worth more than anything because he gave his own life for you. How much more valuable can you find than the God who would love you to bear your sins, your shame, even though he knows your mess and he still wants to love you. And I would much rather meet you and talk to you about the value that you can find in Jesus Christ than ever for you to take your life. Now, if a Christian gets to that point, it's oftentimes because there's been a mess in their life. There's all kinds of things. Yes, there is mental disease and things like that that go on. But ultimately, yes, it's a sin. But it is not a, it's not the unpardonable sin. You hear me? There is an unpardonable sin. It's called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Suicide is not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a whole other subject. Not have time for it. But I can guarantee you, suicide is not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, when he bore your sins on the cross, as God, he knows what your sins were from the beginning to the end. He knows what you're going to do. He knew what you have done. He knows what you're going to do today. And all of that was paid for if you've trusted Jesus Christ, including suicide. Now, I believe there are great consequences in eternity. I, I, I have a feeling that all the rewards that were gained by that point are forfeit in a suicide. Because it is the ultimate telling of God, like, I'm not going to let you take my life. I'm going to take my own. That's why I'm not for even a physician-assisted suicide. Nope, nope, nope. That is the realm of God. And what I want us to understand is that it is indeed a sin. It is indeed a great sin. It's a grave sin, but it is not an original sin that sends you uniquely to hell. All of our sins will do that, but Christ is able to cover them. Now, that being said, will I see my loved one even if they're a Christian? Well, that depends and this is where you have to lean on and trust God for people's salvation and not just our words. Because even Judas would have been thought of as a Christian, would he not? And Judas is an example of one of the people who killed himself in the Bible. 
And Judas killed himself as a final act of rebellion against God, not out of shame or things like that. When, Jude, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest, the elder, saying, I sinned by betraying innocent blood. It looks like a confession. It looks like he's saying, forgive me. Nope, he's just saying it. And they're like, what is that to us? Go see to it yourself. All right, well, go deal with Jesus. Go back to him. Go talk to the disciples. Go make it right. But he doesn't want to face any of that. So instead of what he does is throwing down the piece of silver in the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. And he is called the son of perdition. He is ultimately in hell. But he chose to not return in repentance. He chose to walk away. And I believe Jesus would have received him back. Absolutely. But he chose not to choose that. And so there are some people, even in the claim of being Christians, who will commit suicide out of a final act of like, God, I'm done. I'm just done with you. Now, you don't know who they are. I don't know who they are. If you have a loved one in your life who has committed suicide and you're going to, don't torture yourself with that. Understand that we place every human being in the just and gracious hands of a merciful God. Amen? Ultimately, he will sort through that mess. What was mental illness? What was willful choice? What was rebellion and rejection? What was a brother or a sister tortured and struggling in the depths of their souls? See, on our side right now, there's, we need compassion. If you want to ask the question, I'll give you the bald answers. But ultimately, when it comes to us dealing with each other, it's, we need to care and love for each other, but we don't need to lie to each other. This is a tension that doesn't go away just by saying, well, they'll be in heaven. No. The pain you feel, the struggle that you will have is a giant question mark that will not leave until you stand in eternity. I was just talking to somebody after service. I need to make that clear. We will tell ourselves lies to make ourselves feel better. But in this one case, this is one of the most difficult sufferings that will be placed upon you by someone else. And that's why, again, if you are someone contemplating suicide, I tell you, please, we would rather help you and, and love on you and struggle with you through this than to try to answer the questions of unanswerable questions with your family who you leave behind. Please do not put them through that. Find help. Open up. Because you've been contemplating it. It's not shameful. Every demonic world wants to tell you that. Everybody wants to keep you thinking that. Please do not believe that. Open up. Allow people to come in. Receive the love. It's hard. But it's absolutely worth it. So please let us into your life. Now, in the end, the final question is the, is the final question for all of us, no matter where we're at. And that was, well, how does God determine who, who goes to heaven? And the way it was phrased was that way. And I said, well, in the Old Testament, how does he do it? And in the New Testament, how does he do it? How does he determine who goes to hell? In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the determination of who goes to hell is the same. Everyone who rebels against God goes to hell because of our sin. I'm, I would go to hell because of my sin. I deserve it. Because I have rebelled and rejected the good God. He can't have sin in his presence. He's too just and good. However, salvation in the Old Testament and the New Testament was the same too. It's by faith. You say, what? Yes, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is a view as the Jewish people and the Abrahamic people and the people of Adam to look forward to the conquering of God over evil. That's the first promise given to the people in the garden. 
over and over again than it's symbolized in how they were to trust Yahweh. They trusted Yahweh would conquer evil. They trusted Yahweh would deal with sin. And they trusted that he would deal with it in the temple. They trusted that he would deal with it through the king. And they trusted that he would deal with it through the people. And so they trusted Yahweh. And when he saw their trust in him, he credited to them righteousness. A righteousness that was to come in Jesus. And so they looked forward to God's promise, trusting that God would answer. We live on the other side now of the cross. We look back to God's promise, trusting he did answer. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ did defeat evil, did bear our sin, did conquer the wicked and the sinful, demonic, and spiritual forces of this world. And he did win. And we look back and we remember the promise of his victory, trusting him. And he accredits that to us, his righteousness. So we can stand before God. He says, give me all your sin. I'll give you all my righteousness. That's the promise. Do you trust me? And it was the same just in different directions. And that's the beautiful thing that it lands right back to us today. See, now I get to ask a question. Do you trust that Jesus Christ bore your sins on the cross, conquered evil, rose from the dead to give you the fix that sin has ruined in our lives? It's a gift he offers to you. You don't do anything to clean it up. We can't. That's the beautiful thing. He did the will of God first. We messed it up, but he gives us everything that we need to enter into heaven, to stand before God, to see our dog. <laughs> but you just have to say, it's got to be somebody you trust. You've got to trust that God's promised it. And maybe today it's that time to receive what he promised you and actually step into that trust. And if that's you today, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Do you bow your heads? And we ask you to do that so that you can have a moment with God yourself. And whether you're at home, I ask you to do the same thing. I know you may be all by yourself or you're outside, but today, if you're ready to receive that, I want you to talk to God. Just turn to him and say, God in heaven, I know that I have messed my life up with sin. And I know that you want to fix me through Jesus Christ. I trust that he took my sin on the cross and that you're going to give me his righteousness. I trust that as he rose from the dead, you're going to bring me back too, that I may walk with you and know you. Thank you. I receive your gift. Would you come into my life now and lead me? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that today online, there's an opportunity to let somebody know right now with the side scroll or right there on Facebook or just tell somebody, let us know at the church. But here outside and in here, there are these cards. There are these commitment cards. We would love to connect with you because this is a way of you just saying, hey, I made this decision. I don't really know where to go from here. We want to help you take a step forward. There is a long journey ahead and we want to walk with you and we would love for you to be a part of our family here at Olive Branch. So let us know and you can use that simply by that way and we would connect with you. Otherwise, may God bless you guys. I think there's a lot of awesome living to do in the will of God, amen? And there's a lot to look forward to in the afterlife. And he may come bring us home or not, but let's just live in his will on his mission, amen? Amen, thank you guys. Amen.
Hey, how many of you are parents with kids still at home? There's quite a few in the church. What are you doing January 22nd? Coming here. Coming here. That's a good answer. Hey, we have a parenting conference that's going to be going on. It's a one-day parenting conference with uh, these two speakers, or three speakers, um, that are world-class. Um, I used to work at a conference center, and we'd have people like this. We'd actually have one of these speakers up there all the time. Um, and so they're going to be speaking on confident parenting, um, healthy sexuality, uh, and then also how to, how to make your faith sticky. Uh, so ha- how to make your child's faith sticky. Um, so that way it sticks with them throughout their life. And then also managing technology in the home. Um, I know that uh, Saturdays are usually a time where there's a lot of sports happening in our community. Um, I just want to challenge you to think about uh, coming. Uh, Gina's out in the courtyard. Um, she's our director of family ministries, and she's ready to sign you up. Uh, we also are going to do, be doing a digital version of this to where you can do, uh, log in on a live stream. I want to encourage you to come. Um, this is a conference that will be well worth your while. I'm looking forward to it, and there's a number of us coming as well. So um, think about coming, pray about coming, but uh, do that quickly and just sign up in the courtyard today. All right, let me uh, pray over you and pray over your week. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for today. God, thank you for the hope and the future that we have in you. And Lord, we, uh, we pray over our week, Lord, that as we come into contact with others, that, um, that you would burden our hearts with the lost, those that need a relationship with you. And God, that we would speak hope, truth, and faith into their lives. And Lord, we pray your blessing over our week. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.